something strange in the neighborhood. Who you gonna call? There's something weird and it don't look good. Who you gonna call? Afraid of no men. I ain't afraid of no men. <laughs> Chemistry is the science of transformations. But what I mean by transformation is converting one thing into something that is entirely different with different characteristics, different properties, totally different. This is a piece of Georgia marble from Tate, Georgia, right up the road about 30 miles. There's a bed of <coughs> marble, the purest marble in the world, running for 30, hundreds of miles, literally. And it's a rock. I mean, this is not soft. In fact, if you were hit with this, you would know it. So what I'm going to do today to demonstrate this idea of transformation is I'm going to convert this rock into a gas, which is pretty remarkable, you'll have to think. Um, so how am I going to do this? Well, first of all, we're going to use a few household chemicals. All of you have probably have household vinegar. So we're going to put a little vinegar in here in our reaction flask. Uh, let's put a little more. Now, I must admit I cheated a little bit. It's sort of hard to get this rock into a uh, into this bottle, so I pulverized it. So, this is pulverized rock. And we're going to put a little bit of this rock into a bottle. Put a little more in there just for fun. And let's stir it up. And presto, we've converted it into a gas, CO2. In fact, if you really do it right, you can make it squirt. <laughs> it is a mess, but you can see the bubbles coming off. We have converted a rock into a gas. So how's that for an experiment? All right, thank you, Larry. One of the things he told me beforehand, and, and I didn't realize this, I said, thank you for doing an experiment. And he said, no, it's not an experiment. It's a demonstration. See, an experiment is something uh, in which we don't know what the outcome will be. In this case, he knew what the outcome would be, so that's kind of neat. Chemistry, he says, is the science of transformation, turning one substance into something completely different. You know what? Scripture tells us the same thing, and we'll talk a little bit about that 
later on. Now, on the TV show Mythbusters, the host would take urban legends, they would take myths, and they would use scientific methods to kind of measure the validity of these certain myths. Now, this morning, we continue in week number two of our Mythbusters series. We tackle some hard-hitting questions about our Christian faith. And this morning's myth is one that maybe some of you have held, maybe some of you still do, maybe some of you at least have heard this from someone else. We hear it at times from some religious leaders. We also hear it at times from some people in the scientific community. Here's the myth. Faith and science can't coexist. Let's take some scriptural analysis to see if this is truly a myth or is it the truth. Now, I think that that very often there are some Christians who use the Bible to say that, that science is false. We don't have any need for it. And likewise, at times, I've heard people in the scientific community claim that believing in God, God is nothing more than some sort of superstition. So which is it? Let's tackle that this morning. Now, let me first give you a disclaimer, okay? When I think back to my high school, um, science was by far my worst subject. Preaching was second worst, okay? So uh, you guys are in for it this morning. Let me give you, though, a disclaimer. Let, let me share with you some of the things I do remember uh, from my high school science classes, okay? See if you can understand this. A neutron walks into a bar and orders a drink. The neutron asks the bartender for his bill, and the bartender says, for you, there's no charge. (laughs) Am I right, Larry? All right, okay, good stuff. Here's another. I'm reading a great book on anti-gravity. I can't put it down. Okay. And finally, not soon enough, Two antennas met on a roof. They fell in love, and these two antennas got married. The ceremony wasn't much, but the reception was wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, that one takes a while. All right. Let me tell you about seven-month-old Brandon Scheibel. Unfortunately, he died from bacterial pneumonia, severe dehydration, and strep while his parents prayed close by. And you see, in accordance with their religious beliefs, the parents refused to provide the child with medicine or medical care. Herbert and Catherine Scheibel, they live in New England. They now await trial facing third-degree murder charges for Brandon's death. And sadly, the, the tragedy is further magnified by the fact that Brandon is their second child who died of the exact same thing. Again, his parents refused to seek any medical attention As a result, an easily treated illness was fatal. The Scheibels, they're members of a very small New England church. The church teaches members to have complete faith and trust in God. Okay, I I understand that. I, I agree with that. But here's where they differ. Okay, that means that they totally trust in prayer and prayer alone in order to heal somebody of some sort of illness. All we have to do, they say, is just have the faith and things will be healed. Now, the church even states, their church, a small New England church, our commitment to God means that we trust God alone for physical healing without the use of medicine, drugs, prescription, pills, or other human remedies. And so sadly, these parents prayed for their child to be healed. Again, that's a great thing, okay? I believe in the power of prayer. And yet, 
child died. It was the second child that died. And, and just what a, what a horrible tragedy. And, and as the pastor of their church, he was being questioned by the media. And, and the only answer he could give is this. Their lack of healing must be God punishing them for some sort of sin in their lives. Man. Friends, let me state for the record that I have seen, I have experienced so many supernatural and miraculous things in my life. I have seen people literally cured of fatal diseases where even the doctors are baffled. The doctors, in many cases, they've even said, we can't explain it. It's got to be some sort of miracle. My wife spent three months at Emory University Hospital for something that she could have died from. And the doctor even said, I don't understand this. I'm not even a Christian, but I see the ways in which you guys pray. Maybe there's something to your God that I have never thought of. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in miracles. I've seen a lot of miracles, but I also believe that God has given us wisdom and discernment and medical care. If you came into my office one day and you said, you know what, I'm, I'm throwing up blood, for example, I would say, okay, let, let me pray for you because I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in miraculous healing. But the second thing I would do is say, let's get you to a doctor. So I want to look at this belief that many have that faith and science can't coexist. Is it a truth or is it a myth? As we break down this myth to uncover a lot of theological truths, let's take a walk down scientific memory lane. You see, historically, the Christian church has not only embraced but promoted scientific exploration. Rodney Stark is an agnostic sociologist. He has studied the early rise, the early growth of the Christian church, and this is what he writes. Not only were science and religion compatible, they were inseparable. The rise of science was achieved by deeply religious Christian scholars. Francis Bacon, he lived in the late 1500s, the early 1600s. He was a devout a follower of Christ. He's also credited with developing the scientific method. Many refer to him as the father of modern science. So often when we talk about faith and science, many people bring up the, the, the controversy that surrounded Galileo. He was strong in his Christian faith, but the Catholic Church put him on trial in the year 1633 because Galileo and his studies, he determined that quite accurately, the earth goes around the sun. And so People use Galileo as an example of how the church hasn't embraced science. They, they put Galileo on trial. A lot of people, though, looking back, they say, you know, it really wasn't the fact that the Christians of that day didn't believe what he had to say. The vast majority of them actually did. Rather, it was the result of a paranoid pope who had a personal ax to grind, I guess you could say, with Galileo. So many people look back and use that as an example of how the church has been anti-science. But that seemingly well-regarded fact of history, as it turns out, is false. The Christian church, in fact, looking back, has promoted science and research and study over the centuries. In fact, up until the French Revolution, the Christian church was the leading sponsor of scientific research. Starting in the Middle Ages, the church paid for priests and for monks to study at the universities. 
The church even insisted that science and mathematics should be a part of the curriculum at those universities. And by the 17th century, the Christian church had become the leading scientific organization in Europe, publishing thousands of papers and spreading new discoveries to every corner of the globe. In fact, this is something interesting. Many of those beautiful cathedrals that we find in Europe were designed specifically to double up, not only as a place of worship, but as astronomical observatories to allow study. And so the scientific community has traditionally been filled with people who are very positive and outspoken in their belief in both faith and science. I can give you a couple of names. Maybe you've heard some of these people. Isaac Newton, born in the year 1643. He would become a mathematician, a physicist, an astronomer, a teacher, a writer, and even a theologian. He's one of the most influential scientists of all times. He was a devout Christian. And this is what Sir Isaac Newton wrote. He wrote, gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain those who set the planet in motion. Blaise Pascal lived during the 1600s. I do remember his name uh, from math class growing up. He was a, a deep Christian theologian, but also a scientist and a mathematician. Uh, Johannes Kepler, he was in the early 1600s. He was a prominent astronomer who discovered Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Anybody want to recite that for me? Yeah, I don't even know what that means, okay? But he stated that science explains how something might happen, but that God is indeed the one who makes it happen. Uh, Louis Pasteur, a biologist and chemist, also a Christian. He's known for his discoveries of the principles of vaccination and pasteurization. In the early 1900s, George Washington Carver, Loved the peanut. That's what I remember about him. He, he made a name for himself. He was a scientist. He was a botanist. He was an educator. He was an inventor, and he was a Sunday school teacher. He said that his faith in Jesus gives him the discernment and wisdom to more effectively study science. And so you see, friends, followers of Jesus through the centuries, they have made massive contributions to the world of science and research. And in fact, so many scientists do see the work of God in their scientific research and study that they say, you know what, science may explain some things, uh, but God explains so much more. In fact, let me give you a quote uh, from a well-known Christian leader. Okay, this is what he writes. I don't think that there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the scriptures say things that they weren't meant to say. I think that we have made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. This is what he goes on to say. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption. And of course, I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point, he took this person or this being and made him a living soul or not. It does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship to God. You know who said this? Billy Graham. Who made this statement? Billy Graham. I mean, he's been called the greatest evangelist of all time, and yet he wasn't threatened by modern science. In fact, to the contrary, he saw so much of it as proof of God's presence and God's activity. Ten years ago, President Barack Obama announced his nominee for the director of the National Institute of Health. 
You guys, I know we're on pins and needles until that appointment was made. This is arguably the biggest position in medical research. And Obama's nominee was very controversial. And here's why. Because the man he nominated is a devout and outspoken Christian. He's actually written books about his Christian faith. His name is Francis Collins. He's a world-renowned geneticist and scientist. He's known for his landmark discoveries of certain disease genes. Now, uh, some, some, uh, some scientists were worried at, at Francis Collins' appointment because he says that he believes in miracles. He believes that, that God created everything that science talks about. Ten years later, Dr. Collins is still in that role. Seemingly, everyone agrees that he's done a great job of leading over the last decade. But like I said, he's very outspoken in his beliefs in Christ, and he publicly proclaims that his scientific knowledge actually points to a loving creator. A lot of other people tend to agree. Now, I will say, just for the record, I can be at times critical of Christians, let's say, who espouse the opinion that faith and science can't coexist. And likewise, I'm very critical of scientists who may say the same thing. A, a recent study, though, that looked at scientists found that 27% of scientists think that faith and science are in conflict, okay? 27%, but more than half of the scientists in this country state that they do believe in God. Oddly enough, it's kind of interesting to me, in some other countries, the number of people who call themselves Christians Christians in some nations is fairly low, and yet in some of these nations, the percentage of scientists who believe in Christ is far greater than that of the general public. Now, the, the passage talks about uh, the ways in which God has lovingly designed all of his creation. Let me take you to Isaiah 45, 12. This is God speaking through the prophet. It is I who made the earth and created mankind and at my own hand stretched out the heavens, declares the Lord, I marshaled their starry hosts. Uh, you see, Isaiah, he was an Old Testament prophet who wanted the Jewish people to see just how powerful God is. That God created everything that we know. Now, during that time, there were countless pagan gods. Uh, these pagan gods were, were seen as vastly removed from the culture. In fact, the pagan gods were always fighting. It seems like other pagan gods, they were these uh, distant beings off in the heavens somewhere. They were uh, vastly removed from the world. They certainly weren't active or involved in the lives of the people. But see here, Isaiah is declaring that the one true God, the one true God, Yahweh, not only created the heavens and the earth, but he is still working on behalf of his people. An active, loving God. That would have been scandalous to some of the pagans who, who didn't understand even such a concept. But that's the message that we find all throughout Scripture. Jesus himself, he said that our devotion to God should not only include our heart, our soul, and our strength, but also our minds. The Bible itself doesn't often speak directly about science. Why not? Let's look at that. Because you see, it's not even trying to answer some of the scientific questions that maybe people who are scientists are after. 
There's no conflict, I don't think, if both science and faith are seeking to answer different questions from different places. You see, science, I think, is the method that mankind can use to gain a greater understanding of the natural universe. People a lot smarter than I have uh, these thoughts and these uh, opinions, but I think at times when we understand the ways in which God has given us discernment to fully understand how he has lovingly made all that we know, Science and faith are seeking to answer different questions. Science, I think, answers the question of how? How did something happen? As Christians, we say, how did God make it happen? Science is primarily concerned with explaining how things work. For instance, when it comes to creation, the questions that science tries to answer are things like this. How did the earth form? How did the plants and animals come into existence? Or maybe they'll ask a question like this. If I mix these two chemicals together, like Larry did this morning, how are they going to react? So science seeks to answer how. Do they always get it right? Far from it. The Bible, you see, answers different questions. The question of who and the question of why. Who created the world out of nothing? God. Why does God do what he does? Because he loves us. Scripture says that we were made in God's image. So what looked like conflicts between science and faith, I think really in most cases aren't conflicts at all. The two different sides are simply asking different questions. Science deals with the natural world, but our God works in the supernatural. As a follower of Jesus, I've experienced a hope that many people could never understand. In fact, Scripture even refers to that as a hope that surpasses all human understanding. Scientific method certainly can't explain my faith, but I know it to be true. My experiences prove to me that we have a loving God, we have an active God. Remember the, the scientific demonstration that Larry showed us earlier? It was about transformation. And the scripture, friends, speaks of massive transformation. In my life, I have seen a tangible and a powerful transformation. So have those who know me well. Uh, you see, friends, the scripture tells us that God is transforming his followers into the likeness of Christ. Here's the bad news for me. I'm a sinner. In my life at times, I, I've tried to earn my way into God's good graces, but you know what? I, I can never be good enough. I can never do all that, that needs to be done. Somewhere along the way, I'm going to fall. I'm going to stumble. Maybe I'm going to rebel and I'm going to wander. Or maybe if I could only be a good enough person, maybe I could experience God's warm welcome. Uh, but the problem is the harder I try, uh, again, I'm never good enough. I can never obtain it or attain it or achieve it or deserve it. That's God's grace that offers his love, his forgiveness, his assurance and promise of eternal life. And as John 10.10 boldly proclaims, we have Jesus here and now. This creates a dilemma though my sin and and my human condition my, my right relationship with God you see it, it's been severed it, it no longer exists I can't fix it I can't do anything about it I need a savior out of his love God gives us one talk about transformation I've been transformed from being an aimless sinner to now someone who is 
in the arms of a much-loving God. Talk about transformation. I've been transformed from being a a hurting and a, a broken man into, as the scripture says, an heir of God. Scripture says that not only did God create me, not only does God love me, not only does God welcome me into his family, I have been made an heir of God. How powerful is that? Talk about a a transformation. I've been transformed from being a helpless, a broken person to being someone guided by God's active work in my life and with my life and through my life. Talk about transformation. I've been transformed from someone filled with shame to now someone filled with joy and hope. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, maybe a lot of you know this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Wow. Talk about transformation. You see, this passage from 2 Corinthians is, is, is telling us this, that in my life, can't speak for yours, but in my life, the old sinful hurting Joe is no longer here. Instead, I am made a new creation. Okay, this is not about resuscitation. This is about resurrection. Okay, the old has come, the new is here. One filled with hope and peace and love and joy. My life is a living testimony to the truth that God brings about, despite the number of times that I have rebelled and I have wandered. God pursues us, God woos us into a deeper relationship with himself. Finally, let's go back to the statement that we have been examining. Faith and science can't coexist. I think it's a myth. I don't think it's true. Again, science shows us some of the mighty ways in which God is working, some of the mighty things God has done. And we know that God is still active in our lives. As the scripture says, God finishes what he starts. That in my life, God has chipped away at so many parts of a hardened heart, and yet he's still going. There's still a lot of work to be done. Next week, we'll, we'll look at the origin of life. The, the public schools, for example, are under a, a lot of uh, problems either way, I guess, because uh, they want to teach, for example, the theory of evolution. Is uh, such a scientific view compatible with Scripture? Many people would uh, declare boldly, no. Next week, we'll look at this riveting topic. In, in two weeks, we'll look at the, the origin of the universe. What is the, uh, the Big Bang theory, and can such a process be compatible with our Christian faith. Fun stuff to talk about. We'll do it in two weeks. But the truth is, friends, regardless of how you feel or think about various scientific explanations or research or studies, I know one thing to be true. My brain can't understand science. My mind certainly can't wrap itself around just how mighty our God is. But one thing I know to be true, you and I, you and I, us together, we have a loving and caring, merciful God who not only created us, he saves us. And he is continually active in your life and in mine, wooing us into a deeper walk with him. Science may be able to show us how in many situations How did God do certain things? But our faith tells us why and who. Who? God. Why? Because God delights, the scripture says, in his creation. God goes to great lengths to pursue us, to save us, and to transform us. Will you pray with me?
Dear Heavenly Father, we so much thank you for the mighty ways in which you care for us. The times we find ourselves dragged down by sin and shame, and yet you still love us and offer to restore our right relationship with you. And unlike the myriad of pagan gods from the past, you are a caring and active God, working in each of our lives in mighty ways. And Lord God, may we live out that truth. The Father God, despite what the world says about us, the Bible declares that you delight in us. Even when we've been in the depths of our sin, you love us. You take away the old and you bring about the new. And we thank you for the transformation that you are continually doing in our lives. May we note and may those around us notice the ways in which we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And finally, Lord, as we get set to leave this place this morning, may you take any work that you have done this morning and seal it in. May we see the ways in which you are chipping away at every corner of our lives so that we can become more and more like Christ. We love you, God, and we thank you for first loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, as we wrap up our time together, in just a few moments, we'll stand and, and we'll sing our final song, a song that, that boldly declares the majesty, the sovereignty, the goodness of God. And one of the ways in which we honor God is through our presence. I'm glad that each of you has been present this morning. One of the ways in which we're also called to respond is through our gifts. And you can see up on the big screen various ways to give. You see, friends, through Chapel Roswell, People of all ages, people of all stages of life are being transformed. People are given hope and love and direction. And it's our giving that fuels the transformation that we want to see in our community and that transformation we want to see in this world.